BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, March 18th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. Find us online at inquiring.show, and on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Loyal listeners probably know that I'm a big sports fan, huge sports fan, in fact, mostly hockey, but I also love football and basketball. And sports has increasingly become big business with more pressure than ever on athletes to deliver their peak performance consistently. And so naturally, we've seen athletes become more rigorous, not only in their training, but in how they recover from their training and their games. This recovery has become a science. Athletes swear by supplements. The word hydration has become common parlance. Even strange treatments like cryotherapy, where you walk in a booth and it shoots you with uh, liquid nitrogen mist, uh, are sworn upon by athletes to keep them at their peak. These approaches have crossed over from the world of athletics to the home warrior, birthing a billion-dollar industry. But is this all actually science? Our guest this week tackles the question in spades. Christy Ashwanden is the lead science writer at 538 and author of the new book, Good to Go, What the Athlete in All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. And I want to emphasize the word strange here because there are so many tales in this book that defy belief. Christy lends her skeptical eye towards all of these products, whether Beer can actually help marathoners recover post-race. And by the way, she actually commissioned a study with Colorado State to find out. To exploring the effectiveness of foam rollers, to whether any of these supplements work, and whether you should hydrate uh, with Gatorade and others, or is just drinking water when you're thirsty good enough. Christy Ashwanden, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. When I was a kid... I don't remember seeing ads by all these elite athletes Mm -hmm. talking about recovery, hawking a new product like almonds to refuel me or chocolate milk to build my strength or or the newest drink. It seems like this has emerged over the last 10 to 20 years. Um, Is recovery just like a brand new industry that sort of popped up out of nowhere? Or is that my imagination? 
So recovery as a concept is not at all new. What is new is recovery as a product, as something that you buy and sell and something that you do. So in the book, I actually talk about, and by the book, I mean uh, my new book, Good to Go, uh, which is about the science of exercise recovery. But in the book, I actually say something about, you know, when so... I should back up a moment and say that I used to be a pretty serious elite athlete um, in cross-country ski racing, but also I was a runner in college, uh, ran Division One cross-country, and I also was a bike racer at college and after. Um, but back then when I was racing and I was serious about it, recovery was like all the things you weren't doing. And I, I say in the book that recovery was a noun, and now recovery has become a verb. It's this thing that you have to do, and you have to buy these products and do these things, and it's become almost an extension of the workout itself. So what was recovery like back when you were a collegiate athlete? Was it this sort of like intense regimen of of nutrition and uh, and treatments, or was it something different altogether? Yeah, so back then it was really about eating well, being sure to fuel your workouts, refuel after your workout, um, but it was also about getting enough rest, sleep, putting your feet up. I mean, one of the biggest things was just making sure you weren't out late partying. You know, we were college students back <laughs> then, and, you know, we didn't always, we didn't, you know, our coach was not always pleased with how we implemented that rule. I'll just leave it at that. So kind of common sense things. Like, yes. Like listen to your body. Yes. Uh, take care of yourself, uh, get back into shape. It seems like now, especially among elite athletes, the conversation's really different. How has it changed so dramatically beyond the productization of recovery? Because I hear like Tom Brady like spout yeah. off all these things <laughs> about these incredible regiments he on he's on and and products he uses like even when he's sleeping. Right, right. And so I think what's really happened here is that there's this idea that we've been sold that you know your body can be optimized and that you're just one weird trick away from the perfect you. And this is true whether you're an athlete or you're just a regular Joe. But there's this idea that we can really optimize things and there's this perfect state and that our bodies are sort of you know very fragile and if you get something just even a little bit wrong, you're really off and you're not your perfect self or the, the best self that you can be. And so with athletes, uh, this really manifests in this idea that you need to do all of these things to keep yourself in this perfect state of being in this, this physiological state. And if you aren't eating exactly the right thing or, or sleeping, you know, it's okay to sleep, but you have to be sleeping in Tom Brady's magic pajamas, or maybe your sleep isn't optimal. That's not a euphemism, by the way. Right. <laughs> Tom Brady is literally trying to sell they're two hundred dollars. Well, actually, one hundred ninety nine ninety eight for the. You say the that as somebody who yes. sounds like you've bought a pair. I I tried them out. I can say that I slept numerous nights. I really tried to give them my all. I gave them a good chance, and I. Well, what is so magic about these magic pajamas? So the claim is that they contain uh, this powder that is embedded in the material that is supposed to emit far infrared radiation. And Tom Brady makes all kinds of claims, for instance, that they reduce inflammation, they help you get more rest, they result in better sleep somehow. Um, but when I looked into it and talked to the physicists, um, even just sort of their characterization of fire infrared radiation was not scientific. So let's dig into that. So I think sure. the burning question is, I think we can all imagine that there are a lot of companies out there trying to make a buck on this. Oh, yeah. And, and we see that every day in other industries and other aspects of our lives. So that's not surprising. Right. But are there is there idea founded on good science? So uh, let's 
let's kind of break this down. Maybe let's talk about sleep because mm-hmm. that's why we were talking about Tom Brady's Great pants. topic, yes. Um, and you brought that up as sleep is something, you know, back in the day when you were in college, they were telling you to do. And it's still something that we hear athletes talk about endlessly. Like, what do we know around the science of recovery when it comes to sleep? So what we know is that sleep is the most powerful recovery tool known to science. I mean, really, there's nothing else that comes even close. There's just nothing else. I mean, sleep is like number one, two, through 20, 50, whatever. Like, not, not, absolutely nothing else could come close. So just go to sleep. Just go to sleep. But what I love about the Tom Brady magic pajamas is that it seems almost emblematic of this whole industry. So you have something in this case, sleep, that is extremely powerful. I mean, Tom Brady's completely correct to prioritize sleep. I mean, Tom is apparently well-known for going to bed early, you know, getting up late, whatever, but he really makes sure to get a good eight hours or maybe even more of sleep every every night. And so this is absolutely correct. But you're taking this thing, and now all of a sudden, these companies are coming in, they're swooping in to monetize it. And all of a sudden now, the, the advice is no longer just go to bed early and you know make sure the lights are out and all of this. But it's like, oh, now you need these magic pajamas, and you need all these products to optimize it. There are apps, and there are special mattresses, and there's even recovery sheets, I understand. <laughs> yeah, and so all of a sudden, it become, you take something that's very simple and basic, and you make it extremely complicated. And so something that should be, you know, an easy thing becomes its own source of stress. So one of the things I've heard is, uh, um, you know, not far from where we're sitting tonight uh, is the Golden State Warriors. And they've actually hired sleep researchers to work with them, you know, from academic institutions. And so these are not, you know, pseudoscience type people selling them a product. They're they're people that have actually studied sleep a lot. Yeah. And and we've heard uh, from them that they're really trying to optimize their sleep schedule. You can't hear the air quotes that mm-hmm. I'm doing right yeah. now. Um, to help them, like, optimize sleep before a 7 p.m. game because it's a little unnatural right. for you and I to kind of hit peak performance come 7.30 at night. Well, it's uh, also very difficult. So-, so the thing that's really hard particularly for, for NBA players, let's say, um, is that they're performing at a very high level late into the night. And so if your game doesn't get done till 8, 9, 10, maybe even 11 o'clock, um, and then, you know, after that, you know, all of the stuff that comes after, by the time you're home, by the time you're at bed, it could be like well after midnight, later, you know, after a performance like that, you may be a little bit sort of buzzy and like it can be hard to get to sleep. So this is a difficult thing. And I think that this is one reason that naps have become a big thing in the NBA. And rightly so, I'll say. And I think that it is correct to look really look at sleep and to think how can we do this and how do we acknowledge that yeah these these players are not going to be on normal sleep schedules um in the book i actually talk about a wnba team who did something really brilliant i think and that is they decided they're based on the west coast this is the Seattle Storm uh, uh, WNBA team. And they decided that they were going to just stay on that West Coast schedule when they went to the East Coast. Because the other problem that you can have as an athlete like this is that you're changing time zones. And I can tell you being on book tour right now, it's crazy. It's hard. It, thousands of thousands of miles. <laughs> right, and like right. traveling you know, on planes are not yeah. the most comfortable environment. Yeah. Yes. And so the idea here is that you're you're really sort of putting your body on its ideal schedule and sort of and if you are a you know a professional basketball player, you probably have the luxury of being able to say, okay, we're in this new city, but we don't have something first thing in the morning. So we're going to let all the players sleep in. They're going to get a full night's sleep. They're going to sleep until their, you know, their bodies are ready to wake up. And then we can get up and whatever time, you know, they, if they have breakfast at 10 or 11 noon, it doesn't matter. But what we're going to do is sort of acknowledge and, and sort of adhere to their body's natural rhythms like this. And there's science to back this up. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there's science to show that basically um, one thing that exists right now in, in our society is people are sort of um, hung over with sleep. So the problem is, so everyone has sort of a natural chronotype. And for some people, this is very extreme. Probably average people are a little bit in the middle, but I'll just give you an example. Um, I'm a night owl. I like to, you know, left to my own devices, I will stay up late at night. I like to work late at night, read whatever. I tend to sleep in. My husband is the complete opposite. He wakes up early no matter what he does. He's an early riser. And so those are sort of our natural chronotypes. Um, but the problem right now is that in our society, we're often sort of, our lives are mismatched to our natural chronotypes. So if you are a night owl like me, and you're required to be at work at, say, eight o'clock, or, you know, the really, the, the people who really have this stuff are teenagers who may be required to be at school as early as seven o'clock, which in my mind is like that your body should be in bed at that time. <laughs> Inquiring Minds is supported by Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, a weekly podcast that explores why everything you learned in Econ 101 was wrong and why, if we don't get economics right, the pitchforks are coming. Every week on Pitchfork Economics, zillionaire investor Nick Hanauer is joined by some of the world's most original economic thinkers in a convention-busting exploration of who gets what and why in the American economy. Pitchfork Economics explains why a $15 minimum wage is actually good for business, why taxing the rich spurs economic growth, and why a thriving middle class is a primary cause of prosperity. Senator Cory Booker explains why curbing corporate greed would actually be good for corporations and the economy. Historian Yuval Harari explains how those in power use storytelling to shrink your paycheck, and economist Stephanie Kelton scolds Democrats for worrying too much about how we're going to pay for things and not enough about what we need to do. If you want to learn how to make the economy work for all Americans and not just the wealthy few, subscribe to Pitchfork Economics at pitchforkeconomics.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, you sold me on sleep. Yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to bed early tonight now. But there's so much more that athletes yes. are doing that are being peddled to us. Like the idea of athletes getting massages to like mm -hmm. get the lactic acid out of their muscles, which is something I remember hearing about as a kid. Like that's why there's pain in the muscles and you yeah. have to work it out in order to recover. How much truth is there to that claim? That's a really interesting one. So when I was a college and high school track athlete, we were really told you had to get that lactic acid out of your muscles. That was what was going to make you sore. You did that by massage or shaking your legs out or even a warm down. But now we know that lactic acid, first of all, is not the thing that makes you sore. It is not correlated to soreness. But also it's really interesting to know that your muscles actually clear that lactic acid quite quickly. So whatever these things that are being marketed, I mean, and while I was doing research for the book, I found just countless things. I mean, it almost is like the, the catch-all phrase, everything is flushing lactic acid. But it turns out that by the time you're going to be using one of these products, that lactic acid is probably already gone. So unless the masseuse is massaging as you're running, right, right, you're right. not going to get the <laughs> lactic acid out. Um, that's so interesting that this has sort of become like lore. And it's not yeah. lore that developed recently. It's something that goes back. Oh, it's back. very old, yeah. Uh, and do we have any idea what the origins of it are? Like, what, like because it's, it's such a technical... Like, you know, it's an actual chemical in the body. So, yeah. So, so difficult, you know, high intensity exercise creates lactic acid. And I think it was really, um, you know, you're seeing that there's lactic acid produced in the muscles when you're exercising hard. And so it makes intuitive sense that it might have something to do with soreness. But now that we have more research and the, the, look, I just want to say this is how science proceeds. You have an mm -hmm. idea and you, you sort of make observations and then you continue 
testing them. And pretty much, you know, when you are doing science, it's very often and probably almost always the case that the first idea is wrong, but it's a starting place. And so the important thing here is that you're open to new evidence and that you keep an open mind. So that begs the natural question, like, how much do we actually know about the science of recovery? Because recovery as a topic, as a genre, yeah. while you said it's an old topic, it's still like a relatively new term in the context of of how um, athletes approach it in modern times. Is it well studied? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so starting off as I was reporting this book, I thought there was going to be a lot of really great science. You know, there's all these very scientific sounding claims that are made. And what I found is that there's a lot of stuff that's done for recovery. And some of it really does work. But almost, well, I don't want to say all all of the time, but it's very common that these scientific sounding claims actually don't pan out. And it's, so it's almost like, you know, you're making up stories or creating uh, these scientific explanations for things where we don't have the evidence. And the, the lactic acid is a really good example of that. You know, we see it in the muscles after hard exercise, so it must be the thing that's causing soreness. Well, it turns out that that's not the case. And I imagine that it's also really hard to test this. So yes. a lot of the studies that exist are probably really small studies because that's what's affordable to actually test or they're run by the companies that are trying to sell you something themselves. That's right. And I just want to say it's not that um, I don't want to say that sports science is shoddy science, but it's really difficult science. It's, yeah, a it's really, complicated. It's right? a really tricky problem to solve. And so there are just some inherent challenges. And one of the challenges is if you are studying elite athletes, well, there aren't that many of them. And so let's say you're doing a study and you want to test some strange or new ritual or regimen or product. Well, you have to convince those athletes to you know put aside whatever training and whatever things they're already doing to try this thing. And if you're doing you know a good placebo controlled trial, they may actually get the placebo, not even the thing that you're testing. And so, you know, it can be difficult even to find enough subjects. So I hope you can bust a myth for me. Yeah. That I actually hope you don't bust it. <laughs> so like I grew up playing hockey. Yes. And uh, one of the old like things that happened in the 70s is there's all these images of hockey players cracking a beer, like sometimes during the intermission of games, but yeah. certainly after games. Uh, and they claimed it would help them sort of wind down and relax and like ease the pain of some of the injuries from the game. Mm -hmm. And this idea of like drinking a beer after an intense workout is not New, like even people that run marathons will sometimes do this. And you actually took this a step farther. I did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I was so curious about this because it is something, I mean, look, having a nice cold beer after a hard workout is refreshing. It's a nice ritual, particularly if you're partaking with friends. So you're sort of relaxing, you're socializing. I mean, there are a lot of sort of intangible benefits there. And so, but I, I started thinking, okay, is this really good for us? We sort of have this idea with alcohol. It's a little bit like coffee where it's mind altering and pleasant. And so we, we sort of suspect that it may be bad for us, even while we like hope secretly maybe that it's good for us and so I wondered okay let's I wanted to find out and I looked in the scientific literature and there there weren't any good studies that were really looking directly at this question that I had so I gathered some researchers that I knew we did our own study you did the next natural thing I know you started your own study on it right I'm experimentalist by nature yeah <laughs> and so like what did you learn like you had people actually like run to exhaustion, which is a standard test. Yes, it's a standard test. And I'll just tell you that what I learned doing the study is that it's much easier to get a result than it is to get an answer. And what I mean by that is we did the study, we did the very best that we could. I mean, we were well-meaning, we tried to have most rigorous 
um, methods that we could. But after doing the study, we came up with a result, which I loved, which was that beer was great for women and enhanced recovery in women and that it was detrimental to men and bad for men. And so, you know, if you're like me and you're a woman married to a man, this is great news because it's like, sorry, honey, you're the designated driver. I'm the drinker. Um, But it turned out I, I love this result, but I didn't believe it because I had been not only a planner of the study, but I was also a participant. And as a participant, I realized that we had this fundamental problem, which is that the tests that we were using in the study to measure recovery didn't really feel like they were getting at the thing I really cared about. So we did this test in the lab called a run to exhaustion. We were basically put on a treadmill and you're asked to keep going until you can't go any longer. Well, this is unlike anything that you're doing in normal life. This isn't asking, answering my question of like, if I have a beer today after this hard run, am I, am I going to feel crappy on my run tomorrow? Because here you're just saying, okay, how long am I willing to like tolerate this sort of un- this test that isn't that fun and I don't really care about? And mm-hmm. why did I volunteer for this study? <laughs> uh, and I imagine there's a high degree of variability amongst Absolutely. like people's yeah. individual uh, results. It, there's example after example after example in this book of of newfangled treatments that feel like a fad and yeah. they they wither under inspection, uh, and then some tried and true methods that that hold up as well. So I'm wondering, as a as a last thought, what do you walk away from after looking at recovery as as we're all these these sort of home warrior athletes yeah. ourselves? Like, what is really the 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 kind of takeaways after doing this deep examination. So what I learned from all of my research is basically that, um, you know, we've been sold this idea that our bodies are, are sort of exist in this very precarious state and that we're only one weird trick away from optimizing ourselves. And we've sort of been sold this idea that there's a perfect version of us that's just out there waiting for us to achieve it. And that we're, you know, we're, we're sort of feel like we're always screwing it up. And so we just need to do one or two other things and everything will be perfect. Well, it turns out that our bodies are really sophisticated machines, our physiology, you know, we are actually um, adapted to make do with a lot of, you know, different variable circumstances. And so it's really important to master the basics. But what's happening now is people are getting so fixated on these things that are just really icing on the cake. But if you don't have that cake, the icing is just, you know, a pile of, of, sugar on the plate, right? So don't worry about the cake and just go to sleep already. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Christy Ashwanden, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'll note that my interview with Christy afterwards, we we talked for a bit and I think her line that just sort of echoed to me is that really the science of recovery is based off of listening to your body how it's feeling, what it's telling you. And that's really the most developed machine uh, and most highly tuned scientific instrument that we have to keep us at peak performance. May not be the billion dollar idea that so many others have, but it's the one that is probably the most effective. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us on this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stephen Meyer Awal, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit us at inquiring.show, support us on Patreon, get an ad-free version of the show there. 
find us on Twitter and on Facebook and send us comments, feedback, your best idea for recovering from a marathon. Mine is just not to do it at all. To contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Kishore Hari. Indira will be back next week. Inquiring Minds is supported by Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, a weekly podcast that explores why rising income inequality will lead to pitchforks and what we can do about it. Every week, Hanauer is joined by some of the world's most original economic thinkers in a convention-busting exploration of who gets what and why in the American economy. If you want to learn how to make the economy work for all Americans, subscribe to Pitchfork Economics at pitchforkeconomics.com or wherever you get your podcasts. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs>